Well, from chapter one of Philippians, verse 27, all the way through to where we are going today, chapter two, verse 18, Paul has been addressing a single theme. The Lord God, the one who began a good work in this church, is working to bring it to completion. And this process is going to play out in their lives. And by in their lives, I mean in their lives individually, but also in their lives communally. Right? Together they're working to, to manifest a life that is worthy of the gospel. A life that ordains the gospel together, but also individually. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but a group of people is made up of individual people, right? We're all on the same page here. Good, because if not, the rest of the sermon is going right, like right over you. So as we individually grow and mature and manifest the gospel in our lives, we together will grow. And as we together gather and and work and grow and mature, it's going to rub off on one another because we are going to want our brothers and sisters in the faith to grow as well. So with that, let's look here at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Paul writes these words, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom You shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be poured out. Excuse me. So that in the day of Christ, that I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul is encouraging this church, but he is also holding out a challenge for them. He gives them a reason to rejoice, and the reason is that their life should be a sacrifice, an offering given to God. When you are living this way, you should find joy that God is doing something in you. You should also find joy because that's an indicator that you are growing in your faith. And Paul says, so much so that my life, Paul's life, will be an offering as well poured out. There's the main offering, their faith, but then there's also his offering, this drink offering that is poured out alongside it. And he is joyful for all of that. But the reason why he's joyful is he's pointing something here. He is saying something in verse 15. He's saying, don't don't be blemished. Don't be marked. You live amidst a crooked generation. He's alluding to Deuteronomy 32, verse 5, where Moses is calling the Israelites 
blemished. He says, they have a spot. They are crooked. They're a twisted generation. This, these people who were called out of slavery, who were to be God's people, were to be a light to the nations, but instead they are just like the nations. And so Paul is saying to them, don't be this way. Be different. Be transformed. How do we fight against grumbling? How do we put to death division and disputes? How do we live with lives that aren't marked or blemished? How are we to be a light to this corrupt world? That's what we're going to look at this morning. This is going to lead us to these verses where we're going to spend our time this morning. Verse 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, As you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray. Lord God, We can come to passages like this and be discouraged because we see this call to have a life that is manifesting, that is without a blemish or mark, that is called to be a light into dark places and we can look at our own lives and we can be discouraged. But help us to not stop there, Lord. Help us to raise our eyes unto you see you for who you are, that your grace and your glory would show and would change us, that it would penetrate to the depths of who we are. Help us, Lord, to be diligent in these commands, but help us to not run away from the very thing that is the power for us to accomplish these things. So be gracious to us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So before I start, I wanna spend a little bit of time pausing and considering the word salvation, which will be very important to us. And I wanna think about how that word salvation is used throughout the New Testament. And the first one is probably simple. It's the easiest one. It's the way we probably use it. We talk about being saved, right? This moment in time, this This incident, if you will, where you were not a believer and then you became a believer. This moment of salvation where you accepted the gospel as the good news. Where you saw Jesus as glorious Savior and Lord. These people that Paul is writing to are saved. They've been rescued, plucked out of the kingdom of darkness and brought over to the kingdom of light. Paul calls them partners of the gospel, partakers of grace. He says, you have Christ in you. He points out, you've already obeyed. They're saved, done. That's not the only way the New Testament talks about salvation. It also talks about being 
this act of process, being saved. You might use the word sanctified, sanctification, right? We are sanctified, we're set apart, but we are also being, growing, maturing in sanctification, becoming more and more like Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, you could read these words. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us, this includes Paul who's writing this, but to us who are being, right, process, being saved, it is the power of God. You were saved, you are being saved, And that leads us to the final expression of this word. You will be saved. Future tense. There's this point of completion when Christ returns, when he gathers his people together. At that point, when he brings them all the way to eternity, you will be saved. You will be glorified. You will be like him in all ways. Always, right? So you are saved, you are being saved, you will be saved. We're all on the same page here because that's what you need to understand as we come here to these verses. There seems to be a dichotomy when you look at verse 12 and verse 13. I'll be honest with you, I grew up in the church and I was very aware of verse 12. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. I didn't know that verse 13 existed for so many years. I mean, I knew it was there, but that was never the verse that was held out in front of me. Verse 12, work out your salvation, work out your salvation, work out your salvation, which made me think, "Uh uh-oh, I'm not doing a very good job at this. There is this dichotomy in a way. Some Bible scholars call it the divine paradox. You need verse 12, but you also need verse 13. They, they function kind of like guardrails, right? You guys, and now me, my family, we live here now, in case you didn't know that. My mind's going weird here. But it's really flat here. So you don't really need guardrails, Right? But where I grew up in New York, if you went up to like Bear Mountain or West Point in those areas, you went up these, you know, these bluffs where you had the Hudson River that, you know, cliffed off. And then you had Sheer Rock the other way. And one time I was driving my parents' camper. They had this big motor home and my dad let me drive it. I don't know why. I was way too young and not enough experience. And he was like, you're really close to the white line on the side of the road here. And I said, well, if I move any further that way, we'll be in the river. Because the only thing stopping us from falling into it was a guardrail. You need both sides, right? If you have verse 12, work out your salvation, it keeps you from this passivity, this lax faith, this cheap grace. But you also need verse 13. Because that keeps you from falling off the other side of the road. Of legalism. Of working your salvation, thinking you somehow earn it or merit salvation. 
And so this morning, the main thrust is let us work diligently to live lives as God has commanded, as he works in our lives. Live a life diligently, seeking to fulfill the commands of God as he works in our lives. Church, work out your salvation. Again, I want to be clear here. Listen carefully. I'm not saying work for your salvation. I'm not saying work for your salvation. There is something in salvation that's already yours because of the finished work of Christ that needs to be worked out in your life and in our lives, right? This is being written to a church. It's being written to a community in Philippi. So when he's saying work out your salvation, he's saying together, church, work out your salvation. But that has to trickle down into our own lives. Verse 12 is very similar to what Paul says at the very beginning of this section in verse 27. He says, only let your manner of life Be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving, working, right? Side by side for the faith of the gospel. Live a life this way, whether I'm with you or not with you. In verse 12, Paul says, you obeyed but still obey when I'm not with you. Verse 27, striving for the faith. Verse 12, chapter two, work out your salvation. We are saved, but we are called to continually to manifest the effects of that salvation in our life. It's supposed to do something and not just certain aspects, right? Your gospel shouldn't just impact your life on Sunday mornings. Or Wednesday evenings when you're at a Bible study. All of you should be saved. Your responses should be saved. Your thoughts should be saved. Your actions should be saved. All of you. The working out of salvation is something that we do forever and ever and ever until Christ calls us home. And Paul says here, you are to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. Work out salvation. It's not done by itself. It's with something. Fear and trembling What is this fear and trembling that our salvation is supposed to be worked out with? It's this reality that we serve a God that is holy, holy, holy. He is mighty. He is holy set apart. He is not like us. He is so holy and perfect in all of his characters that The presence of sin, he he has to cast it away. He is holy. And we often don't have this proper fear of God. We forget who he is. 
when you begin to comprehend even, even a little part of the majestic, sovereign holiness of God, and you realize who you are as an unrighteous, rebellious sinner, it should strike fear. There should be trembling. And we need work out your salvation with a holy God because those things together will change you. Have you with sober eyes set your eyes on the majesty of God? Was there fear and trembling? Don't run to verse 13 yet, right? I want, I want you to stop here for a moment. I want you to contemplate. I want you to feel the weight. Who am I before the holy God? I want to say to you, and please let, let me make sure I'm making this clear. When I say, I want to say to you, I'm putting myself here as well. Right? We're talking to all of us here. Fight. Right? Don't, don't run to verse 13 yet. We're going to get there in a minute. Fight. Fight sin in your life. Do something about it. Don't just be like, well, God forgives. We all are sinners. Yeah, and he hates sin. So shouldn't we hate sin as well? Fight. And I'm not saying just fight for the big sins, right? Like, oh man, I know I shouldn't lash out at work, so I'm really gonna work to to, to bite my tongue and and to, to control my anger, at least the outward, right? In my mind, I'm still angry, right? But that's okay because that doesn't manifest outside. No, fight. Don't just fight big sins, fight respectable sins. What are respectable sins? Pride. Ingratitude, durability, coarse joking, worldliness, envy. I mean, there's so many things that we do in the world. It's like, that's fine. That's normal. That's not that bad. I mean, if we truly viewed sin as only the way the world sins, most of us would say, well, we're pretty much perfect because I haven't killed anyone because that's pretty much the only sin the world has a problem with in certain circumstances. Because there are plenty of other ones. They're totally fine killing. I'll be honest with you. I would love not to fight. I would love not to work hard at the process of sanctification. It'd be so great to just kind of sit back and be like, well, someday I'll be perfect. Not today. I'll just wait for him to do it all the way when he calls me home. But there is this call. You, Christian, us, the church, Work out your salvation. Do something. You are called to produce, to manifest, to have this salvation take its effect in your life. And that demands discipline. That demands concentration. That demands work. And these things are not legalistic responses. We're not doing it because we're trying to seek the salvation and the favor of God. We are doing it because we already have it. Beloved, we are called to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. We are called to work out our salvation. We are called to make our salvation impact and address every facet of our 
lives. And we need one another to do it because we are blind of the sin in our own life. If you are a parent, you have had those moments. Your kid is acting like a fool and you're like, this dude is an idiot. And then you go to discipline them and you're talking about it. And all of a sudden, God reveals to you, you're just as stupid as your kid. Kids, use that against your parents. No, don't do that. <laughs> right? Like, we see, I'm blind until I see it in my own kid. I'm like, that's me. Or my close friends, like, right? Like, my best friends see my garbage, and I'm, like, trying to justify, like, oh, it's not that bad. And I'm like, no, Kurt, you have a major problem here, and you need to do something about it because you are claiming to be a follower of Christ, but you are allowing the sin to dwell in your life. I'm going to keep pointing it out no matter how uncomfortable it is. I can't work out my salvation because sometimes I don't see my problem if I don't have brothers and sisters who are poking at that problem. And no one likes that, but we all get better because of it. So we need one another to grow in this. So sisters, brothers, if you're trying to work on verse 12, good. But please don't stop at verse 12. Because if you're like me and you grew up in a church and you heard verse 12 all the time, work out your salvation, work out your salvation, work out your salvation, all you end up with is with, is with incredibly religious non-Christians. You'll be very religious. The world will say, oh, you're so holy, but you will be robbed of Christ and his power in your life. So I checked this morning. There's at least two biographies on this guy, George Mueller. He was a pastor back in the day. He started, started some orphanages. He was a missionary. He was a, a, a prayer warrior. This humble man of God said these words. Though I am weak and erring on many points, God will bless me as long as he shall enable me to act according to his will. I know I have faults. I know I have limitations, but God will bless me as long as he shall enable me. Therefore, let's go to verse 13 now. Let us be thankful that God is working in you I mean you, plural, you all, but also you individually for his good pleasure. God is working in you for his good pleasure. Like I said, verse 12 keeps us from the ditch of being lax and, and passive in our salvation. It drives us to be proactive, to do something, to take serious our faith. But verse 13 keeps us from the ditch on the other side of the road, the ditch of legalism. Verse 13 reveals God is the one working in you. He is the one changing your will, your desires, your purpose, your intentions. You are being transformed because God is in you. You can't do verse 12 without verse 13. God isn't just working with us. He is working in us. 
Think about it. Why do your desires change? Was it because someday you woke up and you're just like, today I think I don't love these things anymore. No, it was God's spirit convicting you, driving you from these things. All of a sudden, the things I want were different than the things I wanted yesterday, let alone five years ago, 10 years ago. Why? I see things differently but it's God who gave me the eyes to see them differently. It's God who has given me a new heart, a heart that's actually one of flesh, one that's alive, one that wants his glory to be manifested to the ends of the earth. And in my own life, it wants something that it did not want anymore. Augustine wrote these words. Our deeds are our own because of the free will producing them. And they are also God's because of the grace causing our free will to produce them. Augustine goes on, he says, God makes us do what he pleases by making us desire what we might not desire. He changes us. How? How does God change us? to will and to work for his good pleasure. I think you get a glimpse of that even in verse 12, right? Even in the the legalistic, if you will, and that's, I know that's not great language there, but verse 12, the one that seems about like you do, you do, you do, God is showing his grace even in that because he says you do it with fear and trembling. How does God change us? He reveals his glory to us. Second Corinthians chapter three, verse 18. Listen to these words. When we with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. How are we changed? By beholding the glory of the Lord. When we grasp even even just little pieces of who God is, it changes us. When you look at the grace of God on the cross, you say, I want to love like that. When we think of the blessings that are ours because of what Christ has done, we want to strive for the kingdom. God is working in you to accomplish his good pleasures, which are ours now because He is in us, and I want what he wants, and he changes us. God isn't eliminating work. He is enabling us to do the work. Jesus Christ himself says in the famous passage of John 15, where he says that that we are the branches, he is the vine. He says in verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. Really, I can't do anything? You could do plenty. But apart from him, it won't be for his glory. It won't be for his good, which is actually your good. How does God change us? How does he, how does he transform us? 
it's often not through a miraculous thing. I, I have heard stories. I have known people. I knew a, a gentleman that was an alcoholic, came to know the Lord, and then all of a sudden was like, I'm never going to pick up a, another bottle or have another drink ever again. So that, that stuff does happen. But more often than not, God's going to change you the way he has created you. And what I mean by that is you're a human being. You were created a human being. And human beings change in stages. We go in steps. And so likely the way God's going to transform you is moment by moment. He's going to show you a truth. You're going to see it. He's going to draw you to it. And then that's going to open your understanding to something. And then you're going to see that. And that's going to change you. And you're going to apply it. And you're going to grow. And it's going to be in the stages, right? It's not going to be leaps and bounds all the time. Sometimes it's by tooth and nail. You are inching forward. He has made you a human. You are going to change like a human. It's going to be a process. But you are being changed. Even if it's just a little bit. I want to point out something here. Even if you are changed by a single degree, if you go off one degree and you continue down that path, your trajectory will drastically be different five years down the road. That's a single degree. But I know if you're changed one degree, he's gonna change you two, he's gonna change you three. Eventually you're gonna be changed, radically transformed. Work out your salvation for, there's a cause there, for God is working in you. In the big things of life, but more often than not, God's going to change you in the mundane things, the ordinary things. You work as God graciously works in you. So what do we do here, right? We have verse 12, I'm doing this thing. We have verse 13, God is working in us to, to actually want to do these things. He's even giving us the ability to do these things. How do we hold these two things together? And so I conclude with this analogy, and I'm gonna point this out. It's an analogy. It's gonna have limitations, but it really, I think, helps us to understand how these two things, these, this seeming dichotomy of these two verses, how do they work together? And then here we're also gonna find this challenge for us today. Man your ship, trusting in the grace of God. That's my analogy. Man your ship, trusting in the grace of God. I said earlier, if you try to do the work of verse 12 without the dependency of verse 13, you, you're going to have some problems. And here's what I mean. Here's, let's play this analogy out. Your salvation is not a raft. Have you ever been on a raft? It just goes wherever the current goes. There's no, there's no real power to it. You just sit there and you do what you do chilling out, sunbathing, whatever it is you do on a raft. Your salvation is not a raft. You have to do something, right? We're called to spiritual disciplines. We're called to work out our salvation. Your salvation isn't a raft. You don't just float. You're never gonna cross the sea. All right, so that's the one wrong way. But there's another wrong way, right? Your salvation also is not a rowboat. 
You don't have the strength to row across the ocean to that celestial great kingdom. You can't do it with man-made oars. Your arms are not strong enough. You can't earn your salvation. Instead, when you hold both of these verses together, you are challenged instead to hoist the sails, control the boom, catch the power of the wind, pay attention to the rudder, watch for the shifting of the breeze so that you can catch it more fully in the sails of your boat. But the true power doesn't come from the one who's cranking the sails. It doesn't come from just holding the rudder. The power comes from the wind. That's what pushes the boat across the sea. That's what I think Paul's trying to say here. Do what you need to do to put yourself in that place where you can get the power of God to change you, to to move you from this shore to that shore. Do something, but realize you can't really do it because the power isn't in the sailor's labor. It comes from a source outside of him. One far more greater. Are we raising the sails? Are we we trying to, to put ourselves in the best spot that we can? How do we do that? It's interesting because the way you do it is through spiritual disciplines, things you have to do. I have to work to pray. I have to work to open my Bible. I have to work to take time away from things. I have to work to pause and say, what am I thinking about? What am I pursuing? go back even another step what gives you the desire to even cross the ocean in the first place why leave the land you find yourself in is it not because god was not gracious that he showed you that there's a far greater land a far greater place a far greater inheritance that's yours on the other side of this great sea We must man the ship trusting in the grace, the gift, the power of God to carry us all the way to the other shore. We come to work resting. What I mean by that is we trust that God is sufficient to do it. I'm ready to work because I know he's going to work through me. So let us as saved ones presently saved ones with glad hearts. Let us work out our salvation diligently with fear and trembling as God works in us the will and the ability for his good pleasure so that we might be saved. Work, church. Let's work. Because he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. We have good news. Our labor is not in vain. So we press in hard, trusting God to do a mighty thing in our life. For his glory, for his pleasure. Because when he is pleased and the things he finds pleasure in, those things we find pleasure in. 
let's work hard trusting in him. Pray with me. Lord God, change us. Change our desires. Change our hearts. Be the encouragement when we grow weary. Lord, drive us to want to labor because we have a good king. We have a a gracious master. We want to do these things. But we also know that we are limited in doing these things. So we, Lord, humbly come again and again and say, change us. Give us the grace to put our foot one more step in front of the other. Give us the desires to want, to work, to, 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 to allow the good news, to allow the gospel to change us. Lord, I pray for all of us here. Let us not grow weary. Let us run. But let us also know that you didn't just go before us. You are with us and working in us. So let's lean into that as well, Lord. We need your power. We need your grace. We need you. So help us to set our mind and our heart on you again and again so that we might hoist the sails to catch the wind, that you would move us from here into eternity when we will be made like you perfectly. We look forward to that day. May that be the desire of our hearts that we would be with you. We pray this in Jesus' name, the one by which we receive all these things and so he receives all the glory. Amen. Let's stand and sing another.